Well, it's good, good to be able to stand up in front of you again. I, I, I say it's good, but I'm always terrified getting up here and speaking in front of you guys. Not because you're terrifying people, um, although some <laughs> more than others. Um, but it's not my natural place to be. And uh, Yeah. And it's been a bit of a struggle going through this, and I've, I've wrestled with this for a bit. And um, Thanks, sweetie. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's difficult to give something that you still feel you're trying to grasp hold of yourself. Um, so bear with me on this. And if it doesn't come across clearly, then there's many people who have spoken on these exact chapters and verses far better than I ever could, and I'd really recommend you can go listen to someone who could expound the scriptures better. But with that caveat aside, I'm going to get into it now, and do you see how I lowered the expectations, so now I can only do really well. So anyway, so we're on a series called Questions Jesus Asked. And the first one Mark was, uh, did last week, and it was uh, the question of, do you believe? So the one I'm doing today is found in Luke, 1, uh, Luke 11, 11, and it is, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? So this is a, it's a great little verse because... A great little rhetorical question because almost instantly any person with any goodness in them (laughs) or any sense of decency would go, well, that's a non-question at all. Everyone knows the answer to that one. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Of course, no father would do that. So, the, so the, the question can't be much help if we just try to read it by itself. So I'm going to try and unpack the scripture verses around it. We're going to try and lead to this because this is at the end of a dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples. I'm going to try and lead you into what I believe is one of the main points that Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples. It's not the only one, but it's definitely one of the main ones that he's trying to get through to his disciples. So why did Jesus ask this question? What was the point he was trying to make? And what can we learn from this? So I'm going to read from the ESV translation. Now, the scripture verses in here, they, they can be translated and the emphasis can be quite different from translation to translation. So the reason I'm saying I'm reading from the ESV is because that's the train of thought I want to take you down. Okay? The ESV's train of thought. It's, it's, and even in that, there are some parts of the translation of the ESV where I think actually it struggles to grasp the, the broadness of what Jesus is trying to bring. I'm not a scholar, but I am going to say some, a Greek word today, and I'm going to try and tell you about it. Isn't that so? I feel like I'm almost there now as, as someone who, who shares because I can share something about a Greek word. But just note, I am not a Greek scholar, 
Nor will I probably pronounce this the same way that a Greek-speaking person might, but we're going to get there, and, and, uh, and, and I'll feel good about it anyway. <laughs> so the verse we're speaking about is actually about the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to know that actually, if, if you've been a Christian for, for any length of time, I can guarantee you would have heard at least one sermon, if not multiple, multiple of sermons on this, and at the very least you would have read this scripture verse multiple times. So it is not unfamiliar to us. What I would really ask, and I'm praying the Holy Spirit, come on Holy Spirit, is that we would hear the faint whispers of what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us today. Let us not be so familiar with these verses that we miss over the faint whispering of the Holy Spirit to us today. So I just encourage you, those people have heard them many times, they're still good. Good news is always good, all right? Luke 11, 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is, uh, he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives and anyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now this is, this scripture verse, or particularly the Lord's Prayer, is in both Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, it's part of a much larger dialogue that Jesus, uh, that the gospel writer writes that Jesus said. It was, it was part of the, uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but here, Luke is saying that actually his disciples are with him. Now, we don't know if Jesus is praying out loud. We don't know if he's away off and they see him praying. But what we do know is the disciples absolutely know that he's praying. They know that it's some, some reason, somehow, he's in communication with God, and they're like, Jesus, teach us that. And the interesting thing is, is, is why, they, why, why bring in John? Why, why just not say, Jesus, teach us how you pray? And it's an interesting thing when they say, teach us as John taught his disciples. Because there's something more the gospel writers wants, to, wants us to look at here. 
This is more than just a nice little prayer that we can stuff in our pocket and pull out and recite when we feel the need to pray. This is, this is talking about a community of people that God is bringing together. See, John the Baptist was part of leading a, a, almost a revival in the nation of Israel. And there was people flocking to him and it was forming a community around him. And part of the way they formed communities would give them prayers to say in a community setting. So they would be able to say this together and have a, a sense of unity and community because of that. So the disciples are saying, Jesus, I see that you're bringing a new community into this earth, a new hope. There's a newness coming. Teach us to be a community. Show us, as John showed his disciples, how to be a community. Now, how do they know that John had showed them to be a community? Well, there's two, at least two disciples of Jesus used to be disciples of John. We know Andrew, which was the brother of Simon Peter, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And there was, like, we don't know who the other disciple was, but we scholars speculate that it was probably um, the gospel writer John. But we don't know that for sure. But we know that at least two of them were disciples of John the Baptist. And here they're saying, we know what John was trying to do, bring a new community into Israel, a new hope, a new focus on the true repentance that God calls us to. Now you're bringing a new hope into this world, Christ. You're bringing a new hope, Jesus. Show us. Show us how we, we unite in a community around that. And Jesus, amazingly, he doesn't go, you've got it wrong. It's not about saying prayers together. It's not about benedictions. It's not about liturgy. He doesn't say that at all. Immediately, he just goes, yeah, sure, no worries. I'll, I'll, I'll teach you how to pray. And what's amazing is the very first word he uses is different from any other Benedict in Judaism to that day. The very first word. Father. He doesn't start off with God Almighty, Lord of all, wonderful creator. No. He starts off with one of the most emotive words that we probably have in our language. Father. You see, Jesus is straight away, he's trying to show us a pattern. He's trying to show us a truth that we can live our life through, not just something we can recite, not just something we can repeat. You see, the next few verses after this, Jesus is trying to show that truth. He's trying to show that it's not a little prayer you repeat. He's not saying it's a liturgy that you are to follow He's trying to expound it and expand it to us to show that actually there's a heart to this. Father. See, Jesus doesn't go. And the amazing thing is, is every time Jesus leaves something with his disciples, it is always dripped in the Holy Spirit. 
You know, when Jesus left and he ascended into the heavens, he didn't go and he didn't say, do you know what, guys? I leave you, I leave you my book. Good luck with it. When he left, what did he say he leaves us? I leave you my spirit. And here, Jesus is immediately saying, and we'll get to the end of it, that this is all about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this this is often classed as the Lord's Prayer, and it's not a really great description of it, because Jesus can't actually pray this prayer. Because it says here, Forgive us our sins. Well, Jesus didn't sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this wasn't a prayer that Jesus was saying, Hey, this is, this is how I speak to my... This is the prayer I pray to my Father. It, that's, that's not what he's trying to get to us. He's trying to say that actually this is something that will help you Approach the Father. So calling it the Lord's Prayer, it's kind of, I think that's just a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer for his disciples, perhaps. Some people, like commentators, love to call it just, it should have just been called the Disciples' Prayer. It would have been much easier. But the emphasis is not upon Jesus praying this, but upon us. The emphasis is upon who we are and who we are praying to. So if we look at the very first word of this prayer, it says, Father. And in this very first word, Jesus is speaking about belonging and acceptance, about inheritance, security, provision, relationship, intimacy, position, family, access, strength, love, and so much more. One word, Father. With this one word, he's opening up the very gates of heaven for us. One word, Father. And you're probably thinking, this is going to take ages if you're going to go each word like this. (laughs) No, this is the key one, people. The reason Jesus starts off with this word, Father. The reason it is at the beginning, because every other thing hangs upon this one truth. Father. And this is not the same as an earthly father. I mean, I've had it today. My child runs up to me in the middle of praise and worship and he goes, Daddy, can I have a sweet? Now, I don't have any. I said, I don't have any, son. He goes, oh, I know someone who does. <laughs> can I go get it? Now, it happened to be one of the ladies singing and I said, no, you can't. And off he runs in the sulk. This is not the, the father, the earthly father of where I can't actually <laughs> satisfy my child. This is not the childishness that a, a, a little child would say, Daddy. This is not the father we're talking about. We're not talking about a childish daddy approach of, Daddy, give me sweets. That's not the father or the message that actually Jesus was trying to say at all. This is Father. This is intimacy mingled with reverence. 
This is intimacy mingled with awesomeness. Father, hallowed be your name. Loving Father, we give you all the glory and honor that you deserve. Intimacy and respect. The very first line of this prayer draws us upwards towards God. He's both loving and awesome, gentle and powerful, accessible, yet completely holy. He's completely transcendent. He is an infinite cut above us. And yet, we can call him Father. And the, and the prayer goes on, and, and you can even hear the cogs turning. Your kingdom come. Let this God rule in our lives and in our community. Let your rule and reign be manifested on earth. Your kingdom come. Father, hallowed be your name. Intimacy, respect. Your kingdom come. Rule and authority of God being worked out in the reality of this earth. The first three statements are to draw our focus upwards towards God. We are drawn up so that his kingdom might come down. We are drawn up to lay aside ourselves and to focus solely on him. The first three statements are so that we would right-size God, put him in his rightful place, not come as a child demanding selfishness, or as my child, it wasn't even selfishness, it's just childishness. He doesn't ask us to come in childishness. He asks us to come as children to a father who is both accessible but awesome. But the next, the next, the very next line shows how loving the father is. And Jesus says, Give us each day our daily bread. It demonstrates the love of the Father. Here is this Father God. He's saying, I know that you have needs. I am not unaware of it. First three statements lifts our eyes up to God so that we would know that this life is a gift. That we would know that our very existence depends upon the goodness of God. Father. I, I got stuck for a long time. I, I took far longer to prepare this than I ever had hoped because I got stuck on this one word. And the one word is daily. And I was looking through it and I was thinking... When I was reading it, for me, it didn't quite seem to fit into the pattern of the rest of what the, uh, the scripture verses after was saying. And I, and I was like, okay, what do you got to do? You've got to go back, dig a bit deeper. Go, go back to what, what would the Greeks say? What do people interpret and translate from the Greek? So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll go back and I'll look over what they said. Well, part of that's a mistake because... It's like a, a spider's web you can get trapped in if you're not careful. Because this very word, this one word, has been so difficult over nearly all of church history to 
translate that for most of the time they translated this word differently from the Gospel of Matthew to the Gospel of Luke. Exact same word in the Greek, but different translations. And even, even harder than that is it only ever occurs twice in all of ancient literature. And it's only twice in the Bible. That's it. No other, they've got no other reference from it. The word is, here, ready for this? Epi, oh. <laughs> Epiousios. Epiousios. Yes, Paul. Yes. Epiousios. No. <laughs> this very word occurs nowhere else in the ancient uh, writings. And so the translators are like, we've got nothing to reference outside of Scripture. We've got nothing else, no other context to reference inside Scripture because it's only in the Lord's Prayer in two places and that's it. And so the best they can do is use the word daily and that's compromise (laughs) because there are many other words in the Greek they could have used for daily. And it doesn't really make sense to use one, this one word that occurs nowhere else just to make us say daily. So there's, there's scholars. This is, not just, this is not my confusion. This is scholars' confusion here. These are people that are starting this and far smarter than me. Now, for many, many, many years, it was translated in Matthew as super essential. Super essential. And that was because of the way they, they try to break the word down. But even then, that doesn't quite work. I've said that to you, and you're like, oh, that's brilliant, that's great. Well, actually, the reason you don't see that in Scripture is because it's, it's not quite the emphasis that Jesus was trying to put on the Lord's Prayer. Because what it does, and this is what the commentators say, if we leave it as super essential, what we do is we're taking away something from this prayer. We lose far more than we gain. See, we're taking away the actual practical outworking of life. We're saying that the bread is nothing more than a spiritual, super essential needs from God. And yes, there is truth in that, but actually God is very, very, very much concerned with our day-to-day life as well. He is concerned with what we eat. He is concerned with our protection and our safety and our security. And if we, if we only super-spiritualize this stuff, we miss that intimacy that a father has with his children. So the scholars go, we can't, we can't say super-essential. We, we lose more than we gain. So I, all I could really do is I go to someone who I really respect. So I go to John Kelvin, the 16th century theologian, and this is how he interprets it. Now remember, this is an interpretation. This is not a translation. The Greek is hard to translate. So this is his interpretation. He interprets it as continually. That it is everlastingly happening. And this is how he says it. He says, O Lord, since our needs every day, since our life needs Every day, new supplies. May it please thee to grant them to us without interruption. 
That's how he interpreted it. It's a continually thing that's happening. Every day, continually. But it's not just a one-off daily thing. And it not only happens if we come to him daily. And we know that because, let's be honest, we don't come to him daily. And yet, he continually provides for us. Give us each day our continual need for life. Give us each day our continual need for life. This very verse here is speaking about utter dependency upon the life giver in all aspects of life. And in fact, the word bread is, is in, the Hebrew, uh, in the Greek that's translated there actually means far more broadly all food groups and probably even more broadly than that, all needs. Give us each day our continual need for life. Everything we need for this life to exist and continue on, please give it to us. And it's, it's, and it's great because before it says about this continual need, because unless we would think, well, he's going to continue to provide, I don't need to do anything about it. It's a continual need. He'll provide life. He'll do it continually. I say it once. It's, just, it's going to just perpetuate endlessly. I don't need... Jesus knows this, so he puts at the front of it, he says, give us each day, each day, each day. At least we forget that we depend daily upon him. Each day brings us back. We depend upon you. This very verse compels us to stay, stay, stay close to the Father. The verse, uh, the, the prayer then goes on and says, and forgive us our sins, uh, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I mean, that's a statement, isn't it? I mean, is that a loaded statement or what? Do you, what, you, what do you think Jesus is saying in this, huh? I mean, could you imagine the disciples going, oh, yeah, no, yeah, I've, I've Forgive? Do I forgive? Yeah, I better forgive. And Jesus is no wiggle room as we would hope to forgive. No, as we should forgive. No, no, no. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This very thing is actually re- revealing even more of the Father's heart. This is even re- more revealing who the Father is because this is showing how the Father stoops down. And when we don't deserve forgiveness, when we're nothing but a mucky mess of sinful grot, the Father picks us up. He holds us close and he says, you're mine. And he forgives us. The Father stoops down, he picks us up out of the mucks, He embraces us with forgiveness and washes us clean and calls us his own. This is the Father. Father, hallowed be your name. We forgive because we are forgiven. 
If we stop forgiving, we are forgetting the very thing that God has done for us. The very reason we can say, Father, we cannot ever, ever, ever stop forgiving when there is need to. Now, this is not trying to say, go dredge up something in your past to try and forgive people for. That's not what I'm trying to get at people. But you know, you know when you need to forgive someone. You don't need to be told that. You know it. This is the forgiveness. Forgive. Because it honors God. Whoever is his representative in this world, how do we best reflect him? Be like him. What does he do? He forgives us. What should we do? Forgive others. It's a straight, straightforward for us to do. And lead us not into temptation. The prayer once again finishes us off with our dependency upon God. As before, when it says, give us our daily bread, and it was talking about the needs of the physical life, here it is talking about protection. It's talking about protection of our spiritual lives. If we stay close to the Father, then we will not be enticed or lured away, as James 1.14 says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Our loving Heavenly Father is our greatest protector. We are to acknowledge our weaknesses so that we may stay in the safety of our Father in heaven. Now, if Jesus had have left it there, we would miss out on a lot of what I've just said because a lot of what I've just said I've got from the next verses. And I'll even show you how they link straight back up into that prayer. So when we go on from here, and we'll read Luke 11, 5 to 8. And it says this. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he would not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now this impotence often is translated as persistence, but once again I think it misses some of the truth that is trying to be brought out here. And in fact, I'm not going to say the Greek word for this one, but in the original Greek, it actually gives the emphasis of shamelessly bold. This word that you'd probably find in most of your Bibles as persistence, perhaps. But the actual translation is shamelessly bold. You see... 
culture of that time was very normal for someone just to turn up unannounced and expect to have food and lodging. Now, it would be very weird for us to do it in our culture. You'd be like, you not heard of a phone? Could you not have warned me? Now, that's not possible back then. But there is something we can grasp a little bit about it because it's still a very unusual story that Jesus is putting forth here. One, the person's turning up at midnight. Now, travelling at night is not normal. It was dangerous to do it at night. You normally didn't travel at night. So very unusual for someone to turn up at night. The second very unusual thing is not to have food in the house. Most of the time, they'd prepare it ready for the breakfast the next morning. And we can see that because a friend knows he can go... And we all have these people, don't we? We can go, I know where I can get stuff. I, I don't have it. I know where I can get it from. This is, this is who it is. I, I know I should have prepared something. I don't have anything for myself or my family. And now I've got a visitor. I don't have anything. I know someone who's got something. But could you imagine me calling you at like three in the morning? No. <laughs> and saying, look, I'm sorry, but I need a favour. Your immediate response would be pretty much what this guy did. Do not bother me. The door is shut. I'm at home with my family. Can't wait till tomorrow? The friend responds with the expected answer. Go away. But because that this, this host is both in a predicament of being shamed because he doesn't have anything for his guest or shamed if he goes, wakes up a neighbour to admit he doesn't have anything for his guest, he's in quite a predicament there. Which is more shameful for him to do? And he chooses the, the lesser to be vulnerable to his friend and say, look, I'm going to put my hands up and say I stuffed up here, I didn't prepare. I have nothing for my family nor for my guests. Can you help? This is a place of vulnerability this person is coming. And because of that place of vulnerability, because of that shameless boldness that the friend approaches, because of that, he gives it to him. But the point I want to bring out here is this story, I don't think this is the main point Jesus is trying to get across in this. So you can pull that out, it's great. But I want to ask, every other verse, what's it referring to? Every other one is referring to something to do with a family or father in particular, father and son relationship, father and child. Who's a father and son in this? Who are the father and the children? They're the ones in the house being woken up. See, often we would say that we are the friend asking God for something. I would say that although that is true and God does grant those who ask him as friends, how much more access does the child next to the father have? In the middle of the night, your child throws up. How much access does he have to the father? Complete. Your child, father, I thirst. Can you get me a drink? Immediate access. Immediate access. 
We're talking about the Father here. And Jesus is, yes, he's saying that be shamelessly bold when you ask, but actually there's even a greater thing. Be with the Father. And if you're right there, actually you don't even need to ask for your needs. Can you see how that comes out in this? The child doesn't ask. Why? The Father's already prepared. Not only does he have enough to give away, he has enough for his family for the next day. Security is already provided for. He doesn't have to send them out on a journey in the middle of the night. They're there right beside him. There is a thread that runs through all of this, and it is this. The father heart is for his children. The father is for his children. And we see this because the very next verse is they say, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. You don't have to go on a journey. You don't have to leave your house. Father, Father. It's, it's right there. It's immediate. It's not ask. And at some point, at some point he might hear you. He's right there. Ask. The Father is there. And this is what he's getting at here. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. The story highlights that as children of God, we have immediate access to him. It, 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 it's showing us that our needs and our security and our protection is right there, there beside us, there, immediate. We don't need to go out and get it. It's there, right there, people. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds is the one who knocks, it will be opened. We start by turning to our Father, God, and asking. We then look for the answer to our request. We seek for God's response to the question that we have asked. And when, and when he answers, and when we find that response from God, we step through into the fullness of his answer. We step into the blessings of God immediately. We live out the answer we found in the Father. And so all of this brings us to the question, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father, the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When you read that now, the immediate thing you look at and the immediate thing that jumps out to you is Father, doesn't it? Here we see Father, earthly, Father, heavenly. And every Father, and it says in in Ephesians 3, it actually says that every family in heaven and on earth is named after the heavenly Father. So every family, every Father has at least something of the Father God that they portray. And if just this one little drop of the goodness of God, one little drop of the Father can have such a response that they know without any uncertainty 
that the way you treat your child is not with harm but with good, how much more, how much more would the everlasting ocean of the goodness of God bring to us? This is what Jesus is trying to get at here. We know how to give good because God is good. And the greatest gift, the greatest gift that God could give us is what? Himself. Why? Because if he is the greatest and there is nothing above him, nothing to compare to him, anything that he gives that is not him would be less. And to show his great love, to show how much the Father loves us, he gives us the very best he can, which is himself. And that links straight back up. When he says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, it links straight back up to give us each day our daily bread. Give us the Holy Spirit daily, please, Father. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. This is how Paul, I believe, that he, he, he either had this prayer in his heart when he, when he wrote these words, because listen to this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and, earth and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is that not the summary of the disciples' prayer? Is this not what Jesus is trying to get at here? The fullness of God. Not a part of it. If I could sum up this this phrase with one word, I can't, but if I could sum this up with one phrase... It would be this. Trust in the Father's goodness. If I could sum up what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples, it'd be this one phrase. Trust in the Father's goodness. Trust that when you turn to the Father and you ask him for your needs, his goodness will Supply them. Trust that when you seek him, his goodness will totally satisfy you. His goodness will never disappoint. Trust that he is your father and you are his child. Trust that the father loves to provide for your needs. Trust that when the storms of life rage and the suffering of this world seems to overwhelm, when you focus on him, and who he is, and who you are to him, that his goodness will rescue you, restore you, 
and give you fullness of life. Trust in the Father's goodness. I'm just going to pray for you now. I had hoped there'd be some time to, to maybe have people respond, but the, the time is gone now, and if you need to go pick up kids, you can. But if you feel like you, you don't actually fully comprehend or even have a desire to know more of what the Father's love for you is, then I, I invite you, there is, there is an invitation for prayer. I would hate for anyone to leave thinking that God's goodness is for others, but it certainly isn't for me. Don't leave if you can't trust in the Father's goodness. Please. Lord Jesus, we pray, we thank you that your word purifies our very soul. We thank you that your truth is something that we not just can cling to, but we can stand upon. That we have assurance and certainty in your truth. I pray as we go forth from here, Lord Jesus, as we go out and as we meet with others, that we would trust in your goodness. I pray for each and every one of us here, Lord Jesus, that we would get a fresh glimpse of what it means to call you Father. And for us to know that you call us your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.